everybody. I'm Josiah. I'm excited and honored to be here tonight. I don't know exactly where here is, but I'm excited and honored to be here. You know, I first got dragged to uh, recovery conventions and saw my first convention speaker. I thought, man, that's like rock star status in recovery, right? They fly in, they put you up, you get to go out town for the weekend, you get to talk in front of a big crowd. Be careful what you wish for. So here I am in Brownwood. <laughs> they took me to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan for a convention. Um, I was in the, the basement of an Elks Club, in Van, Elks Club Lodge in Vancouver, Washington for a convention. There was a bowling alley upstairs. And later this summer, I get to go to the land of 8 billion mosquitoes, Duluth, Minnesota. <laughs> Not quite rock star status. But what I'll tell you is that every place I go for conventions like this, there's always really good recovery. And I, I'll tell you that anytime I come to a place where there are people who are willing to work this hard and spend the kind of money and effort to find and bring in speakers, I know there's going to be good recovery. And that means a lot to me um, because uh, I, I do this stuff because it works. Um, it really isn't rock star stuff at all. I usually lose a weekend and some amount of dollars in, in the meantime and I have no idea where I am or who I've met. I can't remember names, but I come away from it even more on fire than I was before because I get to sit in a group of people like you who understand how exciting this stuff is because it works. Um, it is a little intimidating to come into a place like this, though, because I know to a certain extent as an Al-Anon uh, at a largely AA convention, I come in a little bit into enemy territory. Um, and that's, that's all right. That's all right. All, the fact that the room is this full makes me happy. And, and once we get past the fussy Allen on qualifying part, give me a second. Just, just to show you that I qualify, you can't have one handle up and one handle up. Sorry, Barnes Cup. Um, once we get past the fussy Allen on qualifying part and we start talking about the steps, I, I think everybody in the room who's committed to 12-step recovery should be able to relate. Um, and the, the only other thing that is a little intimidating is how many guys stood up with so much more time than me. Uh, just If I get it wrong, tell me afterwards, okay? Um, so I, I did. I, I came into Al-Anon originally because my teenage daughter was using drugs and drinking, and I couldn't figure out how to get her to stop. So, you know... You guys that come in here to AA and hear speakers who crash cars and get in fights and there's all kinds of crazy women and stuff like that going on, might not seem like much of a reason to come into 12-step recovery. But I will tell you, I will tell you that if you are miserable enough and angry enough and afraid enough to sit in some drafty church basement on a folding chair, you must be in some kind of pain. And, and it's true, I was. And, and um, you know, I, I feel like I changed this child's diapers. And now you're telling me that as a 14 or 15-year-old child, I can't get her to do what I want her to do. I got pretty angry and I got pretty frustrated and I was really afraid for her well-being um, and afraid for what I might do. Um, and, and so I came in to the group that is my home group. Uh, by the way, welcome from the La Cunada 7 o'clock Let's Rock Thursday Night Men's Stag, 125 men strong. If you're ever in L.A., please come see us. Um, there's some amazing recovery there. Uh, <clears throat> so... I came into that meeting, and I came around for a few months, and I kept waiting for you all to tell me how it was I was going to make things better. 
and, and I listened and no one did. In fact, you were rarely talking about the person that qualified you to come in. You were talking about yourself and your own recovery. And that was frustrating to me because my, my child was making a, a mess of her life and a mess of mine, too. And so I didn't stick around very long. And then a couple of years later, after she had um, been taken by her mother to what I call a Baptist boot camp that was in the fair state of Texas, by the way. Uh, she got kicked out. Where else? She got kicked out of that place 11 months into her 12-month program. And her mother said, nope, you're not coming back here. And so she ended up with me. And um, she was as crazy as ever. Uh, there was no evident drug use, although I'm told since that there was. And, and so I thought, what in the world am I going to do now? At about the same time, I started dating a, a sober alcoholic who was dabbling in Al-Anon. And so I thought, oh, Al-Anon, yeah, maybe I'll try that. And, and so one of the things that I heard at the beginning in Al-Anon was, if someone's drinking or sobriety is bothering you, then Al-Anon might be the right place for that. <laughs> so I thought, I still qualify. I heard a guy once share at an Al-Anon meeting, that he was a sober alcoholic, and because he sponsored alcoholic men, that he qualified for Al-Anon, and that's why he came around. <laughs> but came in, I came into Al-Anon this second time a couple years later, and I finally heard what it was you all were talking about. And, and you were talking about the same thing that I had heard in open AA meetings that I had gone to a couple years before to try to figure out what this was about. You're talking about getting better through the process of the steps. And so when I have an opportunity like this, I like to talk about the steps. And, and sometimes, maybe not here with this kind of time, but sometimes I find that the 12 steps are the best-kept secret in Al-Anon. And so I want to make sure I talk about them because much like the powerful recovery that happens in AA, that same kind of powerful recovery can happen in Al-Anon behind the steps. And uh, Al-Anon literature has a, a, a quote that I like because it's so true. It says, if we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. And my experience personally and in the lives of the many men that I sponsor is that that's very true. And it took me a while to realize, as I attended Al-Anon, that that's what I was after, that that's what I needed. I didn't want it when I first came in, but I needed it. I first came in because other people's behavior really bothered me. And the first message I got was basically the message that is conveyed in Al-Anon in the first step. And that is, their behavior may bother you, but there's almost certainly nothing you can do about it. Uh, the first step says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. For an alcoholic, I suppose, that means literally that you're powerless over what alcohol does to you. For an Al-Anon who's not necessarily concerned about the way alcohol affects him, that step means that we are powerless over the way alcohol affects other people. And in a more general sense, what we find is that that step is telling us we're pretty much powerful, powerless over the way other people behave, period. What happens to us is the way that we engage in other people's behavior and the way that we respond to the emotions that come up in us because of other people's behavior, our lives have become unmanageable. And, and one of my favorite examples of how the first step works for the loving father of an alcoholic is something that happened to me years before I got an Allen, and I didn't appreciate the extent to which it was a first step incident. But my daughter had gotten into some kind of trouble at a friend's house across town, and I had driven the family minivan madly across town to come pick her up. My memory is that there were police cars, and they might have had their lights on. And I come, and I angrily buzz at the, at the door, and she comes down, 
And there, uh, I think that night it was uh, glue or something in a bag that they were huffing. And, and so, you know, I, I'm doing what Al-Anon's do. I'm driving her back home and, of course, wagging a finger and just blah, 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 right? There's, Al-Anon is actually the short name for the version, uh, for the program. Al-Anon is the short name. The, the real name is Al-Anon and on and on, right? <laughs> and so that's what I was doing. You know, one more time, I was browbeating and berating her. And, and we got to a stop sign or a stoplight. And I'm going on and on. And suddenly the door opens and she's gone. <laughs> In retrospect, I don't blame her. <laughs> but she's gone. The door is open. I, there's traffic. I've got to drive. I've got to get her. I don't. Completely powerless. And my life is utterly unmanageable. What in the world do you do? I, I mean, we both ended up at home, obviously. But... <laughs> There it is. There's the dilemma. I, her behavior is out of control, and it's affecting me, and I don't know what to do. So, really, the message of the first step is, you're powerless over someone else's behavior, and the way you're responding to their behavior has made your life unmanageable. And so, let me say this before I get too much further into the steps. I did not come into Al-Anon, roll up my sleeves, and say, hey, where's a good sponsor? I want to work the steps. Not even the second time when I came in and I had a sense that I belonged and that maybe there would be something here that, that I could use and that would be of value to me. It took me a long time to be willing to actually embrace the process of the steps for a couple of reasons. One, I had a real hard time with the God stuff. And two, that inventory thing really bothered me. Um, so it took me a while. And, and one of the things that, that, since there are some people who seem to be relatively new here, I want to say is that recovery is a process. It's not an event. For me, it's been erosion and not surgery. So many times I have a guy who's working on a step. Usually it's the fourth step, but sometimes it's other steps. And they just say, oh, boy, I can't wait. And I say, well, that's good. You should do your steps. But it's not like the heavens are going to open and suddenly everything's going to be better. It's a process and it takes time. And it is something that you get to live. So... When I sponsor guys, I say, You're, we're going to work the steps at your pace. I don't have a, a, an agenda or a timetable. I, I think they need to be worked. My life has gotten better because I've worked the steps. The lives of the men around me have gotten better because they've worked the steps. So I encourage people to do them. But at the same time, I try not to let people get too tied up in the idea of, oh, my God, I'm not working my steps fast enough. We Al-Anons have a tendency, to be, a tendency to be perfectionistic and to sort of beat ourselves up. And I tell guys, let's not let our recovery be another tool of our disease. So that said, what I'll say is that once you recognize that you've got those kinds of first step issues, the good news is that if you can understand the principles behind the next two steps, you get a little bit of relief. The second step says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And as I said, I came in and I, and I was having a hard time with the God stuff. I, I, I had sort of rejected religion several times many years before, and I didn't, I, I didn't know if I could even do it if I didn't embrace that part of it. And I was always told, don't worry about that. It gets to be your own conception of it. And in the last five years, I've had an opportunity to sponsor several guys who are militant atheists. And when you read the AA literature, and when you work with some guys who are sort of on the fence, what you find is that when you allow people to sort of sit in this environment for a while, they will get comfortable with the idea of spirituality and sort of come to a conception of a higher power that they're comfortable with. 
But these guys are militant atheists, and they always were, and they're fine being militant atheists now, and they have no real aspiration to find anything else. And in a couple of instances, these guys have worked steps and had great recovery. And, and, and so this stuff can be worked regardless of how you conceive of the higher power stuff. To me, it seems like it would be awfully hard to do what's needed without having some kind of a conception of a higher power, but it can be done. Um, so, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And what that really means is that um, my ideas that have gotten me so far, so successfully, and had me with such a great relationship with my daughter, need to be pretty much chucked out the window. And I need to be willing to try something different. I need to be willing to trust some other response than the one that comes to me. And, of course, it always seemed like there was one. And I wanted to bang that round peg into that square hole over and over. And if she didn't get it the first time, I'd just say it louder the second time. So um, the second step just simply means, even if it's nothing more than something you hear in a meeting or what your sponsor suggests, the idea of doing something differently. Um, one of the atheists that I sponsor quotes something that he heard early on in recovery for him that works, and that is, the program works if you believe in God. The program works if you don't believe in God. The program absolutely will not work if you believe you are God. <laughs> Simple enough. And, and to me, in some ways, that second step is really pivotal because what it's saying is, came to believe. What we need to do is get some sense of trust or faith that it's going to be okay and that we don't have to constantly have a death grip on whatever it is that we think is going wrong. I call my sponsor, and I'll tell him about a dilemma, and somebody's not doing something right, and here's the way it should go, and, and I'll go on and on, and he'll say, all right, Josiah, you're right. Now what? And that's when I failed to understand that part of the second step. And, and this, the second step is saying, if you're willing to try something di different, if you're willing to let go, then that craziness you identified as the unmanageability of your life in the first step can start to fade and ease. And so, just letting go a little bit will give us an opportunity to then move into the third step. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And, and that's really a matter of when she runs out the door and down the street to understand that even though I feel like it's my responsibility and I should fix it, I can surrender it. I can surrender it. So, Putting aside the whole God thing for a minute, whether I believe what I wanted to believe, whether I was comfortable with that idea, I really struggled with this idea of turning my will and my life over to the care of God. And so my, my first two sort of primitive conceptions of that were, one, sort of standing on a corner in a, in a burlap road with a rope tied around my waist and a tin cup in my hand. And I, I looked around me at meetings and... and especially up there in hoity-toity La Cunada, and I thought, no, it's obviously not any kind of a vow of chastity or poverty that's being asked here. Um, so that wasn't it. And then the second one, I said, okay, turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Okay, so I'll lay there in bed in the morning and say, okay, God, here's my will and my life. Ready? Go! Ready? Go! That's not it either. And so, really, the idea of, the, of this notion of turning your will and your life over to the care of God is, was best told by a speaker that I heard years ago, and, and he said he heard it at a, at a meeting in Nashville, and if I had a draw like some of you, I could tell it better. But it goes kind of like this. The whole third step idea is, imagine 
life is like rowing across a lake. And we all know that when you row, your back is to your destination. And so this rowboat has a tiller. And the deal is that we row and God steers. Now, anytime we want to, we can get up and take the tiller. But once we do that, no one's manning the oars. Of course, when I first heard that story, I said, no, nah, I know, I got it. I'm like this, right? <laughs> That's pretty much my solution, right? I'd have one hand on the oar, one hand on the tiller, going nowhere fast. And so the idea is that there's certain footwork that we're responsible for doing that God's never going to do. But the results are what we have to surrender. We have to God, let God be at the tiller. So I want that job really badly. I'm going to go out there and do everything I can to get it. Whether I get it is out of my hands. I would love for my daughter to be happy and successful and sober. I'll be the best parent I can be at this point, whether that ever happens out of my hands. So that's the idea of of the third step surrender. It's just trying to take, again, that death grip off of things and stop trying to control things somehow. I hear guys say they get stuck on the third step and don't know how to surrender their will in their lives. I say, all right, well, if you're not sure where to go from there, how about we start your fourth step? There's a surrender. Um, made a searching and, foral in, searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. When I came in and I, and I read that step, I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not the one who needs the inventory. She is, and I can take it right now <laughs> from memory. But then again, once you've gotten past that first step, one of the things you absolutely have gotten to understand, even if you lose track of it sometimes, is that we're here to do the only thing we can, and that is to do something about ourselves. That first step tells me that I'm pretty much powerless over everything beyond the end of my nose. So what I got to do eventually is I put this one off for a long time. And now I look back at it and I think, man, really? Because if I have a problem now with somebody or something, I sit down and I was taught to do it the old big book way with four columns. And so when I finally was willing to do this, um, I sat down, and of course my daughter's name was the first one on the list, and that second column of what she did was long, you know. She didn't finish school, and she used drugs, and she took money from me, and she makes a mess at home, and she asked for money, and she never got her driver's license. She's 30 years old. She still doesn't have a driver's license. <laughs> but now she has a husband, so I don't have to have a resentment about it. <laughs> so the second column was long, all that stuff, Right. And so it affects my security, it affects my, affects my financial, all that stuff, right? That, that great stuff. And then so you get into that fourth column. What's my part? You know, at the beginning you think, what do you mean my part? If she was a good kid, I wouldn't be here in this drafty church basement on these folding chairs, damn it. So, but by this time, by this time I've started to realize how controlling I am. I've started to realize what a bully I am. I've started to realize how passive-aggressive I am, how manipulating I am. I've started to realize what a coward I am. I'm afraid of my daughter. It's insane. She's smarter than me, though. Um, So, but at any rate, I focus on that part where I can identify what it is that I believe and what it is I do that makes, arguably, a bad situation worse. Because I think, objectively, most of us would say we would rather have our children be successful and happy and safe and sober and all those, all those things, employed, have a driver's license. And so, yes, there's an issue there. And, and frankly, one of the things about doing the inventory process, both the fourth and the fifth step for me, was 
to realize where I had a part, where I completely overlooked it, such as in the example with my daughter, but also situations where there was something bad and I felt that surely it must be me, and then to sit down with the sponsor going over the fifth step and to be told, I don't think that's on you. You didn't do anything there. So that's a big relief for someone like me who feels overly responsible for everybody's well-being. And by this time again, with good sponsor direction, what I realized is that there's a reasonably good chance that the character defects that explain the unhealthiness of my relationship with my daughter are probably not only manifested in that relationship. <laughs> so I also put my other child and my ex-wife and my mom and my dad and my employer and all kinds of other people on that inventory and went through the same column process. And the darndest thing, guess what? Those same character defects manifest themselves in all of my other relationships. And so I get to see that even though my daughter may in fact be a qualifier, my primary qualifier, she may in fact be a problem, but the way I respond to my relationship with my daughter and the things that she does is exactly the same way I respond to other situations in my life. Part of my journey in the steps has been to find out a little bit about a family history that was a complete mystery to me because of the way my parents dealt with their families. And I've come to find out that my paternal grandfather was a raging, fall-down alcoholic. And the more information I got about that, the more I thought about the way my father behaved, the more I realized I'm just cut out of the same cloth as my dad. So I, it turns out I didn't know it because there was none evident to me. I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. When I first started going to those adult child of alcoholics meetings, I thought, what am I doing here? People were telling stories about terrible ugly situations in their homes, and I thought, my family life was nothing like that, but when they talk about the, the way that they feel and, and what they believe about themselves and the way they go out there in the world, I relate completely. So, um, the fifth step then says, admit it to God, to ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And, and to me, in some ways, this step, the, the principle behind this step really explains sort of the magic of 12-step recovery. It's the same thing that must have been in the air when Bill Wilson and, and Dr. Bob were talking in Akron, Ohio in late 1934 or 1935. And so it's, it's one person saying, these are the horrible things I did. Bill Wilson telling Bob, this is how I drank. And Bob looking at him because he was so ashamed of his drinking, saying, oh my God, that's how I drank. And, and, and so when, when an Al-Anon sits down with a sponsor and, and says this stuff that he just doesn't want to admit about himself and then have the sponsor nod his head and say, yeah, I know, that's exactly how I am, there's such a great sense of relief. And, and to me, it's a big deal, of course, when an alcoholic comes into the program after however many years and how much of a mess and finally admits defeat. But can you imagine what it's like for a man to come in in front of a group of men and say, I can't control my daughter, or my wife's a hopeless alcoholic. It's so hard. We have so much machismo and pride in our culture. It's such a big deal to be a man. I think it takes so much courage just to come in and say, I can't do this, and this is how I feel. That's really hard stuff. And, and that idea is, is what's really at work in the fifth step. And that's why I'm really thrilled that this group 
embraces the Al-Anon so much because I, it, it's kind of a big deal for us. And, and it's easy to make fun of and have fun with the idea of, of qualifying for Al-Anon, but it really takes a lot of courage. And, and when I sit with a guy who has done a fifth step and exposed all that stuff, especially the guys who take a long time and, and kind of come in and don't really want to open up and then they finally do that stuff, we sit in my backyard and we go over that stuff and we get to kind of let it out and let a lot of the power out of it. A lot of the shame goes away. So um, that, that fifth step for me has been powerful, both giving it and hearing it. So, um, but then what we have after we've had this sort of recognition of how it is we act and what it is uh, we believe that's behind those actions, we now have some really valuable information about ourselves. Uh, and I have my guys do a list of character defects that they've learned from talking about this stuff and writing it down, and a, a list of character assets so that we now have information that we can take forward through the rest of the steps. Uh, because, really, this business of the steps is about a process, and, and taken out of context, they don't have quite the same value. So we now know what it is that we do and how it is we believe and, and how we make things worse. I tell guys that I can't promise you if you do the steps that your life is never going to be hard. But what I can promise you is that you're going to be way less likely to make it worse by your own behaviors and you're going to be way better able to handle the hard times. So we've got this information from the inventory process, and then in preparation for the amends process, there's two steps in between. And, and the sixth step says that we are entirely willing to have God remove all these defects of character. And those of you familiar with the big book know that there's about that much space, a short paragraph for the six and seven steps in the big book. And then uh, Bill got verbose and has long chapters in the 12 and 12 a few years later on both of them. When he writes about the sixth step in the 12 and 12, he says, the sixth step is the step that separates the men from the boys. And when you think about it, it's really true because the sixth step says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects. All that stuff that I do to protect myself, to feel safe in my world, to manipulate things so that I'm okay, that aren't really working for me, I have to be ready to let go. And so conceptually, it's a really big deal. Seventh step reminds us, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings, reminds us that we're not doing this alone. I've had sponsees come in, work the sixth step, say, okay, let's do that seventh step, because that's where the shortcomings are going to be removed. Oh, no, they aren't. <laughs> Read the step again. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. If that's how it worked, it'd be a seventh step program. <laughs> Six and seven steps, in my experience, are really how we prepare for the amends process. Um, I, I knew a woman long time sober in AA, and she said this early in my recovery. It didn't make sense to me. Now it does. She said the six and seven steps are like the second and third steps with information. Good one, right? So now we have some information about ourselves and how it is we've been making our lives worse. For now and on, it's really kind of a dilemma. The alcoholic comes in and says, I made it worse because I got blasted and drove a car through a store window. I drank for a month and never showed up to work. That's easy. Alanon says, right, she's drinking, but I'm, I don't get it. How is it my fault? Now we know. We've done the inventory. So the six and seven steps say, okay, we're going to get ready to do something about that in the... Eight to nine steps. So the eighth step says, made a list of, of all persons we had harmed and, made, and became willing to make amends to them all. And, and so 
again, you know, the Al-Anon, ever the victim says, wait, they, I've got to apologize to them? How come she doesn't? <laughs> right? The Al-Anon salute. A hand on the back, a hand on the forehead. Yeah, I'm so, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And for me, the biggest deal about the amends process for both the eighth and the ninth steps is to be really clear about our vocabulary. Amend does not mean apologize. Amend means to change for the better, to improve, like an amendment to the Constitution. And so, particularly for the Al-Anon who comes in and he's well-meaning and he tries hard, but he tries too hard and, and messes it up, the idea that he's got to go around and say, man, I'm really sorry, can be a really difficult thing. And, and uh, an apology can and often is a fundamental part of making a direct amends, but it's, we've got to be really clear that this isn't fundamentally about an apology process. And I think that this idea of removing, short, uh, removing defects of character or removing shortcomings can be kind of tough. Because in many instances, what we're doing is trying to make our behavior more balanced rather than absolutely removing something. So the idea that I'm trying to be a good father isn't something I want to remove, but it is something that I need to bring into better balance. So um, it's really a matter of how am I going to change things based on the information that I got from the inventory process so that I'm healthier and the people around me are less bothered by me. <laughs> so I, I usually have a good list of the people that are on uh, that need amends from my four-step, right? Because if I've done a four-column inventory, then I've got that list of people. And so I, I make a list. And, and what I have guys do and what I've done in the past is, so what was the old behavior that I want to change? And, and how is the new behavior going to look? And, and I go over that list with my sponsor, and then I'm ready for the ninth step, which says, may direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And so one of the amends that I've made to my daughter um, it's actually kind of a fun one in some ways, uh, is I, I've gone to her and I've recognized that one of the resentments I had about my daughter was that she had this really, she had a talent for getting me to do things, right? Oh, Daddy, I really want to go to the mall. Okay, honey. I have no way to get there. And magically there'd be car keys in my hand, right? Oh, man, I want to go to the movies. All right, sweetie. I don't have any money. Right? And so suddenly my wallet would be out. So one of the amends I got to make to her was to say, you know what, sweetheart? One of the things that I do is I volunteer my time and my money and my help to you when you haven't even asked for it. And I don't really think that's fair to either of us. So what I'm going to do in the future is wait for you to ask me for what you want rather than to volunteer it just because I perceive a need. And the look that came over her face was classic because I knew, my, my daughter, who, as I, I said, is smarter than me, she knew the jig was up. <laughs> now I'm going to have to ask. Dang. And, and it's been astonishing, too, because what happens is I would, in fact, jump in to volunteer help to try to make things better. And when I don't do that sometimes... I then get the privilege of listening to my daughter talk about her life. So a few years ago, she is with the man that is now her husband. And I believe at the time she was either pregnant or had just had um, 
her daughter, and she was talking about how horrible he was and how bad things were and how she was sure it wasn't going to work out and he was treating her badly. And every fiber in this Al-Anon's being wanted to do something. Everything. I sat on my hands and I bit my tongue and I just listened. Oh! About a month later, we're out to dinner again. And she's talking and she says, Oh my God, Sean is so wonderful. I can't believe how great he is. Thank you, God, that I hadn't said anything before. Because she would have gone away from that and said, I can't believe what Dad said about Sean. So, but I've really gotten an opportunity to allow her just to be who she is and to really appreciate how much of what goes on in that dynamic is about my discomfort. I get to sit in that discomfort, reminding myself of what I have to believe from the second step. I have to believe that it's going to be okay, that I'm not in charge of her well-being, especially now that she's an adult. So as I go through this process, I start to identify places where my behavior contributes to the problem or my behavior is the problem. You know, my perception that there's a problem and then my response to it. So one of the inventories I did a few years ago was a result of me sitting in a meeting and hearing a guy share about being impatient. And I listened to this. Actually, I didn't hear anything of the share after that. Impatient. I'm one of the most impatient people I know, and I don't think that was on my list of character defects on that inventory I did a few years ago. Dang. So I sat down and did an entire fourth step because I thought, what else did I miss and what else am I now aware of? And I, I did this inventory searching for relationships in my life where my impatience manifested itself. Relationships other than that thing in L.A. freeways where there's a guy in the number two lane who can't seem to keep up. That guy made it on my inventory. On the impatience inventory. Seriously, people are doing 75, and then there's one guy who's in the number two lane doing 63. And he screws everything up. And, oh, so you tailgate him for a minute, you want to honk, and then you go around him, and then what do you do? You, you give him the stink eye, right? You know the amends that I had to make on that one? Other than I, I'd long since retired my driving finger. That one's just not okay. Not in L.A. The amends I had to make on that one was to not tailgate the guy. When I identify the guy in the number two lane going 63, and trust me, I think there's an agency out there that hires them. They're always there. So I go around him as soon as I can, and then as I pass him, my eyes stay straight ahead. That's my amends. And by the time I'm four car lengths away from him, I've forgotten about him. So, but the impatience amends um, that, that was really the most profound for me um, as I worked through this process on this inventory was with my father. And at the time, my father had been retired for a number of years, and he loved to read. And I swear he just picked books by their weight. He, I read a history of China, son. Dad, I got to run. And, and that, and, and so, by the time I got to the amends process on that character defect, I realized that the amends had to be that I didn't have to call my dad all the time, but when I did, I needed to call him at a time when I was calm enough and had the time to hear him out. 
That's how it was going to work. And so the first time I did it, I called him up, and he started to tell me something about his day. And I listened quietly, and I didn't hurry him off the phone. And I swear to you, in three minutes, he said, Okay, son, well, I'm sure you got to go. Nice talking to you. And I thought, how about that? And I thought, surely it was a fluke. Next time I called him a couple weekends later, called him up, and I did the same thing, and the exact same thing happened. It was my perception of the situation and nothing at all about the reality. My dad was from that generation that never spent a lot of time on the phone. He didn't want to have long conversations with me. So it was a fascinating example of how so much of what I create in my world is all on me, despite what my perception was. So that's the process there. And to me, really, the most crucial piece of what we do is that inventory through a man's face. The first three steps are absolutely necessary to get us there, to get us ready. That's the core of what we do. That's how we can change our lives and change the way that we act, improve our behavior. Um, and, and so what I find is that I, I come into this believing about myself that I'm a bad person, that I don't deserve good things, that I'm responsible for the bad things that happen. It's, it's, a, it's a very bleak look, and, it, and it's, it's very, there's no self-esteem in there. There's a lot of self-hatred. There's a lot of fear. And that fear, of course, generates anger. If I go out there and behave in a different way, even though I still feel that way, my world eventually begins to change. If I go out there and, and approach my job just thinking about how it is I can go out and be a good employee, without acting on all my fears and insecurities. My employer eventually is going to appreciate the hard work. If I behave with my daughter as if I respect her as an individual and as an adult, and I don't have an agenda with how she acts, my relationship with her is eventually going to change. And that's true in every area of my life. And so what happens is, as I start to treat my world differently, my world treats me differently back. Before I got into recovery, before I identified my character defects, I had those core beliefs, and then I went out there and I behaved consistently with those core beliefs, and the world gave me that back in confirmation. Doing the immense process allows me to change the way that I act. Eventually, those beliefs that I have about myself have to change because of the way my world changes around me. My beliefs are absolutely inconsistent with the world that I have around me today. So, this process is so important that it's repeated in the 10th step. Continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Which, in my experience, is continue to do some version of looking at your character defects and changing your behavior by way of amends. And that's what we do on an ongoing basis. The 11th step then tells me that I sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God, as I understood him, right? Praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And so that's been a process for me of acting differently than I necessarily believe. What I've come to in terms of the spiritual aspect of this program is the less I have to define what my higher power is, the less I have to define spirituality, the more open I am to embracing whatever it might be, then the more I can have that experience. So my sponsor of many years, Carl H., says, I'm an agnostic, but I pray just in case there is something out there listening my sponsor's a smart guy. And so, you know, I believe there's something out there. I have no idea what it looks like, and I don't have to put a face or a name or a shape on it, but I do. I pray. And, and by the time I got to this step, 
even though I hadn't really defined any of those beliefs, I thought, I may as well do this step. All the other steps work. This one can't be in here by mistake. And so I do, I pray. And some of the pray- prayers I say are just the rote prayers because that helps my mental process. I stood outside my room today and I said the third step prayer over and over again because I say the third step prayer over and over again whenever I need to calm my mind. I knew I was going to come up here and, and be on the spot and I was nervous and I said the third step prayer. Sometimes just saying a prayer gets my mind out of that place of madness. And, and sometimes any prayer helps me to remember that I'm not alone. And I don't have to do this by myself. And then the meditation piece, I'll tell you what, just getting some meditation into my life to slow me down by itself would be valuable. But it also helps me to disconnect from all the fears and anxieties that have a tendency to tell me what it is I need to do and to just to be open. It's been interesting for me to watch my atheist sponsees go through this step because they do it. They absolutely do it. And I have no idea how they connect with the higher power that that step talks about. But they absolutely do it, and, and they, they absolutely get value out of it. And so it's a valuable process, and it's an important part. The 12th step then says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. And it's, there's a lot to that step, but, but the first piece that I find interesting and, and found interesting when I actually got to it was having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. I, I didn't come into 12-step recovering wanting a spiritual Awakening. I don't think any of us do, right? I'm looking for a spiritual awakening. You guys got a meeting? You know, no newcomer, no newcomer ever says that. Newcomer comes and says, "Oh God, this sucks." So, but but I I have had, and and for me again, I I don't need to try very hard to define that, and I want it to be a, a lowercase s and not a uppercase s. You know, I. I think that depending on how we define our spirituality, it's all around us all the time. You know, you guys drove hundreds of miles to the middle of nowhere to spend a weekend. (laughs) Clearly, all of you have had or are about to have a spiritual awakening. (laughs) And, of course, the idea of carrying the message to others is one that's so fun for me. I get to sponsor dozens of guys and do steps all the time, and I'm constantly, constantly being reminded by phone calls from them about how this stuff works and how sometimes just a simple shift in our attitude can make things better. And, and I get that message all the time. And then, of course, for me, why else would I be willing to come to wherever we are and do this if it wasn't so profoundly, profoundly moving for me and really a lot of fun? Um, But more than anything, I think that this idea that we practice these principles in all our affairs is the big deal. You know, alcoholic comes into AA because his drinking has finally made enough of a mess of his life that he has to. And Al-Anon comes into Al-Anon because somebody else's behavior has finally made him completely crazy enough that that actually makes sense. But what we know by the time we've done this is that neither the alcoholic nor the Al-Anon has come here just because of that. You know, the, the big book says our drinking was but a symptom. Talking about the inventory. We had to get down to causes and conditions. And what we learned from the very beginning in Al-Anon is that that's nice that she's making that much of a mess of your life. Now, what's your problem? And so what I get to learn, again, is that I take what I've learned about myself and I employ it at work, 
in personal relationships, on the freeway, in romantic relationships. And so suddenly I look up, after not nearly as many years as you guys, but after a number of years and a lot of work, and I find that I've never had a better employment situation. I will have been married to my new bride for a year on Monday. I actually have relationships with both of my daughters. My dad died a few years ago, and, and my strange, bizarre, isolated family did what it does and just sort of stayed isolated. I made a commitment to call my mother every day because that's what we, that's what we do around here. Someone's going through some stuff. We call up every day. I've called my mom every day with exceptions I can count on my hand for three years, and I've watched her be an example of resilience and strength. Everywhere I turn, I take what I learn here and employ it, and my life gets better. I hope yours does too. I love you guys. Thanks.